Chapter 8, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in August 2019. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 8, Part 2. A strait of the sea separating England and Wales has also been introduced, on the evidence afforded by shells of existing species found in a deposit of gravel, sand, loam, and clay, called the Northern Drift, by Sir R. Murchison. And Mr. Trimmer has discovered similar recent marine shells on the northern coast of North Wales, and on Moyle Trifon, near the Menai Straits, at the height of 1,392 feet above the level of the sea. Some raised sea beaches and drift containing marine shells, which I examined in 1843 between Limerick and Dublin, and which have been traced over other parts of Ireland by different geologists, have required an extension of the dark lines so as to divide that island into several. In improving this part of my map, I have been especially indebted to the assistance of Mr. Oldham, who in 1843 announced to the British Association at Cork the fact that at the period when the drift or glacial beds were deposited, Ireland must have formed an archipelago, such as is here depicted. A considerable part of Scotland might also have been represented in a similar manner as underwater when the drift originated. A portion of Brittany is divided into islands because it is known to be covered with patches of marine tertiary strata, chiefly Miocene. When I examined these in 1830 and 1843, I convinced myself that the sea must have covered much larger areas than are now occupied by these small and detached deposits. The former connection of the White Sea and the Gulf of Finland is proved by the fact that a multitude of huge erratic blocks extend over the intervening space, and a large portion of Norway, Sweden and Denmark, as well as Germany and Russia, are represented as sea, on the same evidence, strengthened by the actual occurrence of fossil seashells, of recent species, in the drift of various portions of those countries. The submergence of considerable areas under large bodies of fresh water during the tertiary period, of which there are many striking geological proofs in Auvergne and elsewhere, has not been expressed by ruled lines. They bear testimony to the former existence of neighboring lands, and a certain elevation of the areas where they occur above the level of the ocean. They are therefore left blank together with all the space that cannot be demonstrated to have been part of the sea at some time or other since the commencement of the Eocene epoch. In compiling this map, which has been entirely recast since the first edition, I have availed myself of the latest geological maps of the British Isles and north of Europe, and of those published by the government surveyors of France, Messieurs de Beaumont and Dufresnois, the map of Germany and part of Europe by von Dechen, and that of Italy by M. Tchihachov. Lastly, Sir R. Murchison's important map of Russia and the adjoining countries has enabled me to mark out not only a considerable area, previously little known, in which tertiary formations occur, 
but also a still wider expanse over which the northern drift and erratic blocks with occasional marine shells are traceable the southern limits of these glacial deposits in russia and germany indicate the boundary so far as we can now determine it of the northern ocean at a period immediately antecedent to that of the human race i was anxious even in the title of this map to guard the reader against the supposition that it was intended to represent the state of the physical geography of part of europe at any one point of time the difficulty or rather the impossibility of restoring the geography of the globe as it may have existed at any former period especially a remote one consists in this that we can only point out where part of the sea has been turned into land and are almost always unable to determine what land may have become sea all maps therefore pretending to represent the geography of remote geological epochs must be ideal the map under consideration is not a restoration of a former state of things at any particular moment of time but a synoptical view of a certain amount of one kind of change the conversion of sea into land known to have been brought about within a given period it may be proper to remark that the vertical movements to which the land is subject in certain regions occasion alternately the subsidence and the uprising of the surface and that by such oscillations at successive periods a great area may have been entirely covered with marine deposits although the whole may never have been beneath the waters at one time nay even though the relative proportion of land and sea may have continued unaltered throughout the whole period i believe however that since the commencement of the tertiary period the dry land in the northern hemisphere has been continually on the increase both because it is now greatly in excess beyond the average proportion which land generally bears to water on the globe and because a comparison of the secondary and tertiary strata affords indications as i have already shown of a passage from the condition of an ocean interspersed with islands to that of a large continent but supposing it were possible to represent all the vicissitudes in the distribution of land and sea that have occurred during the tertiary period and to exhibit not only the actual existence of land where there was once sea but also the extent of surface now submerged which may once have been land the map would still fail to express all the important revolutions in physical geography which have taken place within the epoch under consideration for the oscillations of level as was before stated have not merely been such as to lift up the land from below the water but in some cases to occasion a rise of many thousand feet above the sea thus the alps have acquired an additional altitude of four thousand and even in some places ten thousand feet and the apennines owe a considerable part of their present height to subterranean convulsions which have happened within the tertiary epoch on the other hand some mountain chains may have been lowered during the same series of ages in an equal degree and shoals may have been converted into deep abysses since this map was recast in eighteen forty seven geologists have very generally come to the conclusion that the numulitic limestone together with the overlying phacoidal grit and shale called 
flish in the alps belongs to the older tertiary or eocene group as these numilitic rocks enter into the structure of some of the most lofty and disturbed parts of the alps apennines carpathians pyrenees and other mountain chains and form many of the elevated lands of africa and asia their position almost implies the ubiquity of the post-eocene ocean not indeed by the simultaneous but by the successive occupancy of the whole ground by its waters concluding remarks on changes in physical geography the foregoing observations it may be said are confined chiefly to europe and therefore merely establish the increase of dry land in a space which constitutes but a small portion of the northern hemisphere but it was stated in the preceding chapter that the great lowland of siberia lying chiefly between the latitudes fifty five degrees and seventy five degrees north an area nearly equal to all europe is covered for the most part by marine strata which from the account given by pallas and more recently by sir r murchison belongs to a period when all or nearly all the shells were of a species still living in the north the emergence therefore of this area from the deep is comparatively speaking a very modern event and must as before remarked have caused a great increase in coal throughout the globe upon a review then of all the facts above enumerated respecting the ancient geography of the globe as attested by geological monuments there appear good grounds for inferring that changes of climate coincided with remarkable revolutions in the former position of sea and land a wide expanse of ocean interspersed with islands seems to have pervaded the northern hemisphere at the periods when the silurian and carboniferous rocks were formed and a warm and very uniform temperature then prevailed subsequent modifications in climate accompanied the deposition of the secondary formations when repeated changes were effected in the physical geography of our northern latitudes lastly the refrigeration became most decided and the climate most nearly assimilated to that now enjoyed when the lands in europe and northern asia had attained their full extension and the mountain chains their actual height soon after the first publication of this theory of climate an objection was made by an anonymous german critic in eighteen thirty three that there are no geological proofs of the prevalence of any former period of a temperature lower than that now enjoyed whereas if the causes above assigned were the true ones it might reasonably have been expected that fossil remains would sometimes indicate colder as well as hotter climates than those now established in answer to this objection i may suggest that our present climates are probably far more distant from the extreme of possible heat than from its opposite extreme of cold a glance at the map will show that all the existing lands might be placed between the thirtieth parallels of latitude on each side of the equator and that even then they would by no means fill that space in no other position would they give rise to so high a temperature but the present geographical condition of the earth is so far removed from such a state of things that the land lying between the poles and the parallels of thirty is in great excess so much so that instead of being to the sea in the proportion of one to three 
which is as near as possible the average general ratio throughout the globe, it is 9 to 23. Hence, it ought not to surprise us if, in our geological retrospect, embracing perhaps a small part only of a complete cycle of change in the terrestrial climates, we should happen to discover everywhere the signs of a higher temperature. The strata hitherto examined may have originated when the quantity of equatorial land was always decreasing, and the land in regions nearer the poles augmenting in height and area, until at length it attained its present excess in high latitudes. There is nothing improbable in supposing that the geographical revolutions of which we have hitherto obtained proofs had this general tendency, and in that case the refrigeration must have been constant, although, for reasons before explained, the rate of cooling may not have been uniform. It may, however, be as well to recall the reader's attention to what was before said of the indication brought to light of late years, of a considerable oscillation of temperature, in the period immediately preceding the human era. We have seen that on examining some of the most northern deposits, those commonly called the northern drift in Scotland, Ireland, and Canada, in which nearly all, in some cases perhaps all, the fossil shells are of recent species, we discover the signs of a climate colder than that now prevailing in corresponding latitudes on both sides the Atlantic. It appears that an Arctic fauna specifically resembling that of the present seas extended farther to the south than now. This opinion is derived partly from the known habitations of the corresponding living species, and partly from the abundance of certain genera of shells and the absence of others. The date of the refrigeration thus inferred appears to coincide very nearly with the era of the dispersion of erratic blocks over Europe and North America, a phenomenon which will be ascribed in the sequel to the cold then prevailing in the northern hemisphere. The force, moreover, of the German critic's objection has been since in a great measure destroyed by the larger and more profound knowledge acquired in the last few years of the ancient Carboniferous flora, which has led the ablest botanists to adopt the opinion that the climate of the coal period was remarkable for its warmth, moisture, equability, and freedom from cold, rather than the intensity of its tropical heat. We are therefore no longer entitled to assume that there has been a constant and gradual decline in the absolute amount of heat formerly contained in the atmosphere and waters of the ocean, such as it was conjectured might have emanated from the incandescent central nucleus of a new and nearly fluid planet, before the interior had lost, by radiation into surrounding space, a great part of its original high temperature. Astronomical Causes of Fluctuations in Climate Sir John Herschel has lately inquired whether there are any astronomical causes which may offer a possible explanation of the difference between the actual climate of the Earth's surface and those which formerly appear to have prevailed. He has entered upon this subject, he says, impressed with the magnificence of that view of geological revolutions, which regards them rather as regular and necessary effects of great and general causes, than as resulting from a series of convulsions and catastrophes, regulated by no laws and reducible to no fixed principles. 
Geometers, he adds, have demonstrated the absolute invariability of the mean distance of the earth from the sun, whence it would at first seem to follow that the mean annual supply of light and heat derived from that luminary would be alike invariable. But a closer consideration of the subject will show that this would not be a legitimate conclusion, but that, on the contrary, the mean amount of solar radiation is dependent on the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit, and therefore liable to variation. Now the eccentricity of the orbit, he continues, is actually diminishing, and has been so for ages beyond the records of history. In consequence, the ellipse is in a state of approach to a circle, and the annual average of solar heat radiated to the Earth is actually on the decrease. So far this is in accordance with geological evidence, which indicates a general refrigeration of climate, but the question remains whether the amount of diminution which the eccentricity may have ever undergone can be supposed sufficient to account for any sensible refrigeration. The calculations necessary to determine this point, though practicable, have never yet been made, and would be extremely laborious, for they must embrace all the perturbations which the most influential planets, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, would cause in the Earth's orbit and in each other's movements round the Sun. The problem is also very complicated, inasmuch as it depends not merely on the ellipticity of the Earth's orbit, but on the assumed temperature of the celestial spaces beyond the Earth's atmosphere, a matter still open to discussion, and on which M. Fourier and Sir J. Herschel have arrived at very different opinions. But if, says Herschel, we suppose an extreme case, as if the Earth's orbit should ever become as eccentric as that of the planet Juno or Pallas, a great change of climate might be conceived to result, the winter and summer temperatures being sometimes mitigated, and at others exaggerated, in the same latitudes. It is much to be desired that the calculations alluded to were executed, as even if they should demonstrate, as M. Arago thinks highly probable, that the mean amount of solar radiation can never be materially affected by irregularities in the Earth's motion, it would still be satisfactory to ascertain the point. Such inquiries, however, can never supersede the necessity of investigating the consequences of the varying position of continents, shifted as we know them to have been during successive epochs, from one part of the globe to the other. Another astronomical hypothesis respecting the possible cause of secular variations in climate has been proposed by a distinguished mathematician and philosopher, M. Poisson. He begins by assuming, first, that the sun and our planetary system are not stationary, but carried onward by a common movement through space. Secondly, that every point in space receives heat as well as light from innumerable stars surrounding it on all sides, so that if a right line of indefinite length be produced in any direction from such a point, it must encounter a star either visible or invisible to us. Thirdly, he then goes on to assume that the different regions of space, which in the course of millions of years are traversed by our system, must be of very unequal temperature, inasmuch as some of them must receive a greater, 
others a less quantity of radiant heat from the great stellary enclosure if the earth he continues or any other large body pass from a hotter to a colder region it would not readily lose in the second all the heat which it has imbibed in the first region but retain a temperature increasing downwards from the surface as in the actual condition of our planet now the opinion originally suggested by sir w herschel that our sun and its attendant planets were all moving onward through space in the direction of the constellation hercules is very generally thought by eminent astronomers to be confirmed but even if its reality be no longer matter of doubt conjectures as to its amount are still vague and uncertain and great indeed must be the extent of the movement before this cause alone can work any material alteration in the terrestrial climates mr hopkins when treating of this theory remarked that so far as we were acquainted with the position of the stars not very remote from the sun they seem to be so distant from each other that there are no points in space among them where the intensity of radiating heat would be comparable to that which the earth derives from the sun except at points very near to each star thus in order that the earth should derive a degree of heat from stellar radiation comparable to that now derived from the sun she must be in close proximity to some particular star leaving the aggregate effect of radiation from the other stars nearly the same as at present this approximation however to a single star could not take place consistently with the preservation of the motion of the earth about the sun according to its present laws suppose our sun should approach a star within the present distance of neptune that planet could no longer remain a member of the solar system and the motions of the other planets would be disturbed in a degree which no one has ever contemplated as probable since the existence of the solar system but such a star supposing it to be no larger than the sun and to emit the same quantity of heat would not send to the earth much more than one thousandth part of the heat which she derives from the sun and would therefore produce only a very small change in terrestrial temperature variable splendor of stars there is still another astronomical suggestion respecting the possible causes of secular variations in the terrestrial climates which deserves notice it has long been known that certain stars are liable to great and periodical fluctuations in splendor and sir j herschel has lately ascertained january eighteen forty that a large and brilliant star called alpha orionis sustained in the course of six weeks a loss of nearly half its light this phenomenon he remarks cannot fail to awaken attention and revive those speculations which were first put forth by my father sir w herschel respecting the possibility of a change in the lustre of our sun itself if there really be a community of nature between the sun and fixed stars every proof that we obtain of the extensive prevalence of such periodical changes in those remote bodies adds to the probability of finding something of the kind nearer home referring then to the possible bearing of such facts on ancient revolutions in terrestrial climates he says that 
it is a matter of observed fact that many stars have undergone in past ages within the records of astronomical history very extensive changes in apparent lustre without a change of distance adequate to producing such an effect if our sun were even intrinsically much brighter than at present the mean temperature of the surface of our globe would of course be proportionally greater i speak not now of periodical but of secular changes but the argument is complicated with the consideration of the possibly imperfect transparency of the celestial spaces and with the cause of that imperfect transparency which may be due to material non-luminous particles diffused irregularly in patches analogous to nebulae but of greater extent to cosmical clouds in short of whose existence we have i think some indication in the singular and apparently capricious phenomena of temporary stars and perhaps in the recent extraordinary sudden increase and hardly less sudden diminution of eta argus more recently eighteen fifty two schwabe has observed that the spots on the sun alternately increase and decrease in the course of every ten years and captain sabine has pointed out that this variable obscuration coincides in time both as to its maximum and minimum with changes in all those terrestrial magnetic variations which are caused by the sun hence he infers that the period of alteration in the spots is a solar magnetic period assuming such to be the case the variable light of some stars may indicate a similar phenomenon or they may be stellar magnetic periods differing only in the degree of obscuration and its duration and as hitherto we have perceived no fluctuation in the heat received by the earth from the sun coincident with the solar magnetic period so the fluctuations in the brilliancy of the stars may not perhaps be attended with any perceptible alterations in their power of radiating heat but before we can speculate with advantage in this new and interesting field of inquiry we require more facts and observations supposed gradual diminution of the earth's primitive heat the gradual diminution of the supposed primitive heat of the globe has been resorted to by many geologists as the principal cause of alterations of climate the matter of our planet is imagined in accordance with the conjectures of leibniz to have been originally in an intensely heated state and to have been parting ever since with portions of its heat and at the same time contracting its dimensions there are undoubtedly good grounds for inferring from recent observation and experiment that the temperature of the earth increases as we descend from the surface to that slight depth to which man can penetrate but there are no positive proofs of a secular decrease of internal heat accompanied by contraction on the contrary laplace has shown by reference to astronomical observations made in the time of hipparchus that in the last two thousand years at least there has been no sensible contraction of the globe by cooling for had this been the case even to an extremely small amount the day would have been shortened whereas its length has certainly not diminished during that period by one three hundredth of a second baron fourier after making a curious series of experiments on the cooling of incandescent bodies 
considers it to be proved mathematically that the actual distribution of heat in the earth's envelope is precisely that which would have taken place if the globe had been formed in a medium of a very high temperature and had afterwards been constantly cooled he contends that although no contraction can be demonstrated to have taken place within the historical period the operation being slow and the time of observation limited yet it is no less certain that heat is annually passing out by radiation from the interior of the globe into the planetary spaces he even undertook to demonstrate that the quantity of heat thus transmitted into space in the course of every century through every square meter of the earth's surface would suffice to melt a column of ice having a square meter for its base and being three meters or nine feet ten inches high it is at the same time denied that there is any assignable mode in which the heat thus lost by radiation can be again restored to the earth and consequently the interior of our planet must from the moment of its creation have been subject to refrigeration and is destined together with the sun and stars forever to grow colder but i shall point out in the sequel chapter thirty one many objections to these views and to the theory of the intense heat of the earth's central nucleus and shall then inquire how far the observed augmentation of temperature as we descend below the surface may be referable to other causes unconnected with the supposed pristine fluidity of the entire globe end of chapter eight part two